It is disheartening that we are stuck in a cycle where the government is too incompetent to do health care and private industry has proven itself too greedy to be trusted with health care. While there doesn't exist a single person that I have met that doesn't strongly believe health care needs to be more affordable, many are prone to using colossal oversimplifications when they express their ideas to fix health care. That is reality. Just like the people who genuinely enjoy ice fishing tend to have drinking problems, those whose solution for all of healthcare's woes can be stated in six sentences or less just provided a colossal oversimplification that won't work. Payment reforms alone, whether you call it universal healthcare, single payer, Medicare for all, or going to true free market capitalism, which by the way, has never been tried in my lifetime in this country, they won't address every gap in America's healthcare system. It would be an oversimplification to argue that any of them would. Economic debates are usually more of a vehicle to espouse one's politics than it is a science. Healthcare economics is no exception. Now, Napoleon said that in politics, stupidity is not a handicap. And a lot of smart-sounding politicians and doctors and financial experts and others say very stupid things when it comes to healthcare policy, while others say inconvenient or complex things that people don't want to digest and hear. And doctors are very divided on healthcare policy. Many of us, even within the same private practice group, have completely opposite opinions that we genuinely think will work. And we disguise our politics in healthcare economic debates, and I assume I am not totally immune to that, but there is a desperate need to be genuine in having a refocus towards strictly what will improve coverage and outcomes, and to be fair to the frontline nurses and providers and even the housekeeping staff at the hospital, which I'm gonna tell you a story about in a bit, But when Americans are committed to being practical rather than ideological, we just achieve more. And there's part of the problem, right? I mean, it's been a long while since U.S. citizens have come together politically to be practical. And that is why Napoleon's saying is correct, because too many voters are utopian in what they believe can be achieved. And this is particularly true when it comes to very expensive, unfunded mandates. Others are utopian and thinking a total free market will work just fine in healthcare because that won't work either. And as a guy heading into my late 40s, I can assure you that time is never a good beautician, just as I can assure you that continuing to delay major fixes to healthcare is making it rougher for patients and those working in healthcare. Patients are getting more pissed at frontline providers in healthcare, which is understandable when they go in for something relatively minor, wait hours to get seen, and then get a crushing bill. Who is going to like their doctor when that happens? Who's gonna like the nurse that's providing care if you just waited for 16 hours in the ER? And that is what is so painful at this moment in time because not only is it failing the patients who are the most important part of this equation, but it also is failing us frontline people who are doing our best to try and provide good care, but things are in our way. Times used to be better in medicine before everything became so radically expensive. Kind of how my wife and I were happy for 22 years, 
and then we met. That's a total joke, of course, but it's okay. To this day, she thinks my podcast, it's like as if she had a husband that's going into the basement to make a model car, and I kind of like it that way. But one thing you should never do is criticize your spouse's decision because you are one of them. And after all these years, it is nice to be fantasized about, even if those fantasies are about me taking out the trash or doing the dishes or whatever. Anyway, the U.S. has a long history of blended systems of capitalism and socialism. And I'm not just talking about healthcare or Medicare. There are concrete examples of solely having a single government option, such as those that currently exist for a public service like the fire department. I think we all agree that if your house catches on fire, you know what number to call. You don't search the internet, you don't check the phone book, you don't call around for prices or have discussions about who is going to arrive there first. Even the staunchest capitalist competition arguments will not work in the burning house scenario. Nobody is screaming about fire departments and saying Venezuela, which you know is a modern war cry against any condition of society in which a service potentially could be owned and controlled by the state, kind of like the fire department. So when your house burns, there's one call and you don't get a bill for extinguishing the fire because taxpayers like you already prepaid for it. Now, in a fantasy world, a single-payer healthcare system would mirror that of the fire department, but that fantasy starts to break down as you get deeper into it. Meaning now if you imagine nationalizing all local fire departments to run out of a central office and that single office is located on the East Coast and add in lobbyists constantly buying the ear of Congress to say why their fire hose or truck or ladder should replace all the ones that exist and those companies are giving big campaign contributions, those type of things would only be a small handful of challenges to enter the huge equation. But despite those problems, I also get that the benefits of a single-payer healthcare system, like let's say a Medicare for all, is that there is increased coverage of people and possibly holding down costs since prices will be regulated. Though at the same time, we got to acknowledge that the coverage of more people does increase costs because we pay for more people to get care. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't cover those people because us doctors see the outcomes of uncovered populations all the time. And we also see bankruptcy happening to those working people who until they became really sick thought they were paying for great coverage in the private market or getting great coverage through their employer. Now healthcare costs combined with a disease causing the inability to work are the number one reason for personal bankruptcy in the United States of America. And by the way, that includes being the number one cause of bankruptcy among those with private market insurance. Let's see how long your employer keeps you and you get to keep your insurance when your car wreck causes a brain injury or lung fibrosis keeps you from walking more than 10 feet or you go blind or deaf or develop psychosis or the thousands of other things that can suddenly happen to keep you from doing your job well. And it forces us to think about policy, which by definition is political. Now, political in the mind's of many in our country, it conjures up this right versus left scenario. However, we must revert back to what political really means. So if you like look in the Merriam-Webster dictionary, the definition of political is of relating to government or the conduct of government, or 
of relating to or concerned with the making of governmental policy. Therefore, all public policy debates are political by definition. And the irony of not wanting to provide opinion or those who don't vote on politics is that even that choice of silence is political and it provides power to those who do vote. See, American citizens will cross the ocean to fight for democracy, but won't cross the street to vote, let alone mail-in ballots, which is how I have voted for over a decade. But my hope is that more people who are working in healthcare speak up for problems in a way that is beyond having just our own self-interest at heart. And while it's true that lions don't care about the opinions of the sheep when it comes to politics and governments, such laws of the jungle shouldn't apply to healthcare leadership. We need to be different. We also must care for the sheep. That is a difficult challenge in healthcare, trying to be profitable but wanting the best for customers, which for us is patients. It's like being willing to kill for a Nobel Peace Prize. It gets really challenging. So to have collaboration, there must be a shared goal. And it remains to be seen whether or not that idealism of being for the public good ever becomes a shared goal that surpasses self-economic interest. Now let's be honest about how the United States got into this and other predicaments in the first place, which really comes down to that God is punishing us about our societal acceptance of homosexuality in the liberal Jewish-controlled fake news politically correct media. See, God was willing to overlook slavery and the genocide of Native Americans, but Caitlyn Jenner, that was just too much. Not to mention excluding Pete Rose from the Baseball Hall of Fame. Now look at the debt we are in and why all these storms and floods are happening. God has had it with accepting people for who they are and as a result is going to make our planet look like Tatooine. And now that the truth about God's wrath is revealed, as some preachers have been saying, well, they didn't say anything about Pete Rose. That, that was my contribution. Maybe the preachers haven't looked at every aspect of her demise. And potentially there are some decisions that us humans have made that have contributed to problems, and maybe some that can be made better, and those better decisions will guide us into solutions. And here's where I really lose some friends and listeners, because I'm going to acknowledge several contributing inconvenient truths, because accurately stating a diagnosis is important to treatment. And those truths include a lot of blame to go around that even includes, as difficult as this is to say, blame on doctors and some blame that I'm going to put, oh my God, on patients. And then obviously the big business incentives of multiple industries that are part of this huge web that has been woven. But why not pick on the elderly first? So first, let's address the 65 and older population, the people that say they paid into Medicare and therefore are owed it. And they don't understand that they only partly paid into it. The amount spent in Medicare is much higher than the amount that was contributed. Now, life expectancy consistently increases, as do costs of medications and all kinds of care, and the unfunded liabilities of Medicare is now in the trillions, many trillions of dollars. So when people say Medicare for all is an economic solution, I become as nervous as a virgin at a prison rodeo. 
And I'm not saying I don't agree with some aspects of Medicare for All, but those who I have seen argue that it economically will solve everything are smoking a utopian strain that will wear off with a bummer of a crash. All right, the next one is even tougher for me to talk about. And maybe I'll start with a Buddhist quote, though I'm not certain of the origin. I think it's a Buddhist quote that has nevertheless stuck with me. And I believe it is, if you are helping someone and then expecting something in return, you are doing business, not kindness. That's the quote. And I'm not saying you can't be a very nice person and be in business. And there is no shortage of nice and committed people in healthcare. But while healthcare has been a calling to many of us, it at the same time is a business. There can be more than one truth for why we are motivated to do what we do. Yes, there are some who totally donate their time and even decades of their lives to an overseas population and are expecting nothing and economically gain nothing. So I'm gonna exclude those amazing souls that are like our mother Teresa's. But that in no way is the majority of us that are working in healthcare in the United States. And likewise, I would say that for every person that chose a specialty for financial reasons or makes decisions heavily decided by finances, I know plenty of others that went into academic medicine for less money than they could have earned in private practices. Or I know plenty of people that did go to underserved areas because they felt that is where they could make the biggest impact in rural Alaska or wherever. I can say it faithfully without pandering that I have met just the best people in my profession. It's one of the reasons I love my profession, yet that doesn't mean it isn't a business. And it's for that reason that the electronic health record are mostly designed for billing and gaming quality metrics. It is why nearly every employer limits time that can be spent with a patient. And it is why enormous profits are made by many in the web, including the pharmaceutical industry and the device industry. And it's a business, but a strange business because the government sector mostly bills taxpayers and future generations of taxpayers who didn't agree to the bills. And that's why it is not a free market. Also, I do wanna mention that there are real debts from medical school. And many of my residents that I teach are often just getting by, paying off loans, and I'm not saying all doctors are rich, but very few with reasonable lifestyles worry about getting food on the table or retiring comfortably. And those with lavish lifestyles, I actually have seen that destroy some doctors and their families. Well, I also know some that live a very lavish lifestyle and can easily afford it. If you have been an attending physician for at least a decade, usually you aren't struggling. Now I know some are, and some of you are gonna email me about this, but I'd, maybe it's just a sample of people that I know, but when you're an attending physician for a long period of time, the ones that are struggling usually have a combination of factors, like they may have had very difficult divorces or physical or mental health issues or some crippling lawsuits or some major circumstances, but the majority of the ones I know are not struggling to put food on the table. And I think it's only fair to recognize that there are outliers, not so much in hospital medicine, but there are outliers in medicine that are paid extraordinary sums of money. I personally think that when it gets 
to ridiculous amounts that it detracts from the profession. I know a lot of you will disagree with me, but I do feel that it's fair to say that those on the front lines, and I'm not just talking about the doctors, I'm talking about everybody on the front lines of medicine, should be taking home way more than what is being eaten away by middlemen and stockholders and administrative costs and executives that never did a night shift. So only speaking for myself for a second here, I'm in hospital medicine. I'm a hospitalist. Now for the average hospitalist this year in 2019, the average salary is $225,000. not talking about average hospitalist as far as their quality of care. I'm just saying the average salary across the board. Some may be paid higher and be of lower quality, and some may be paid less and be of very high quality. In medicine, it's odd that payment often has nothing to do with the quality of physician you are. In fact, I know of some inverse relationships, as do all of you out there. I absolutely hate bringing up salary, but I think it's only fair in an economic discussion. So for the majority of the public, even a hospital salary seems like a ton of money. And for many specialists I know, they would freak out if they only earned 225000 This recognition of this issue has the potential to be an endless tangent that I realize can be debated forever, but to try and bring home the point on this tangent. So I was just reading Modern Healthcare magazine, which I do every week, and in it this week, they point out an electrophysiologist that made more than $6 million last year alone. Not, not all of it was clinically, as he was paid for his so-called administration expertise as well. And here's the thing. I was a chief medical officer at a big hospital, and I can tell you, in a lot of fields, there are outliers in salary, both for clinicians as well as for administrators, and that forces a normal person to question the ethics of it, because if that money could have been partly spent on patient care or paying CNAs better or whatever, the disparities that we are seeing would not be as big, at least in my opinion. I know there's some people who don't subscribe to the theory that there is a pie, and if people eat more pie, there's not enough to go around. I realize some just don't subscribe to that, and I don't know, maybe you're right, but Again, there is a very big web out there and a lot of moving parts and a lot of plates in the air. So let's just move on for a second. The next thing I wanna address is the under 65 population, where roughly half still get insurance through their employer. They have insurance, yet their deductibles can be huge and more than they can afford. Now, the folks that fall into the category that I think were ignored during the Affordable Care Act debates, and I also think they were ignored in the subsequent attempts to repeal it. Now the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, whatever you wanna call it, ultimately increased the amount of people getting coverage, which is important, even though despite that, we still have 29 million people this year uninsured. But unfortunately, it is the folks who do have insurance that keep seeing increasing deductibles that many just can't afford. I believe in work. I've seen with my own eyes those on disability who have scammed the system, some have scammed me successfully, which has been to the detriment of those large numbers of people that are born with or acquired very real disabilities. So we can get into the whole disability thing, but let's put disability aside because I would like to acknowledge the working poor, the masses of people 
that are actually working 40 hours or more a week at low wages, sometimes with more than one job, and they still can't afford a home or good health care. And if me thinking that is ethically wrong, particularly when that person's employment is for a huge corporation with proven massive profits, if you want to call me a socialist, fine, but I know I am not. I am a capitalist. I just know that America has worked best when it has been a system of capitalism with breaks. Capitalism with no breaks doesn't trickle down and literally kills people, meaning I have seen people unable to afford the care they really need who are the working poor. And therefore, we must address not only the uninsured or unemployed, but the working poor in future considerations. Now, I believe that having skin in the game is important, so I'm not against deductibles. I am for them, but to a much smaller degree than they currently exist. The problem is right now that some deductibles are getting really huge, $10,000 a year or higher. Some people can go through a $10,000 deductible if their illness occurs, let's say, in December, and if they're still struggling in January, have another $10,000 deductible, and you can understand how this piles up very quickly. Now, those born with major congenital conditions can have that expense every year throughout their entire life meaning they or a family member is paying their maximum deductible every single year. Now, I was just listening yesterday to a story about a faith-based hospital in Memphis that's suing its own housekeeper for more than $23,000 in medical bills, including a bill that they tagged on for $5,800 in attorney's fees to collect her bill. And the hospital pays her $12.25 an hour. Now, you can barely live on that, you know, raise kids, pay for housing, food, utilities, and then have your low-paying employer add legal costs to the collection bill fee. Now, you may say, well, that's probably just an outlier. Not an outlier. That particular hospital system, just that one alone in Memphis, from 2014 to 2018, had filed more than 8,300 lawsuits against patients. So this isn't something that I'm just raising that is out of what has become ordinary. To me, it's like taking on your first low-pay MMA fight, and then after you tap out with a broken arm, the referee kicks you in the nuts. It is bad out there for a whole bunch of people. Now, at the same time, I don't think it's contradictory for me to say and believe that people should have more skin in the game in an end-of-life situation. Meaning if there's a 99% chance someone is going to die despite aggressive medical care in less than a month. I think after more than three days, if a family wants to keep the ventilators on and all kinds of other things going, they should be responsible for at least half the bill. That is not the same thing as being in favor of drastically dropping deductibles for absolutely needed care. Now, complex opinions and truths will need to be acceptable for healthcare economics to ultimately work. And I realize this is a difficult topic for everybody. Now, the other thing worth acknowledging is that when people say Medicare for all, when they talk about a single payer, it has a lot of connotations 
connected to it. So the reason some doctors dislike Medicare is that at its core, CMS, which is the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, is both an insurer and a regulator. So physicians, yeah, they don't like restrictions and payments or in services offered, and mandated safety standards of how to best provide a service upsets some providers that are convinced their way of doing something is better. Therefore, the one-size-fits-all just doesn't work always for shoes or for healthcare. Yet on the other hand of the spectrum, unrestricted payments or unlimited services or failing to implement strict safety regulations results in unsustainable misuse and abuse. Therefore, the CMS tug-of-war conundrum may never be solved. But keep in mind that if we move to a single payer across the nation, it will be much more powerful than CMS. CMS currently coexists with much of the population also using private insurance companies and private industry. So a single payer will infringe on medical decisions that patients want as well as providers want for their patients. Any public option has and will pay hospitals and providers less. There are some people who think that's a good thing and a lot of people who obviously don't think that's a good thing. And when it comes to hospitals, I can faithfully claim about doctors and nurse practitioners and PAs and nurses and all kinds of other healthcare associated jobs within hospitals that is 24 seven, 365 days a year that nearly all of us are working harder than an ugly stripper to get paid. There are plenty of times at three in the morning, you know, when you get that call from the floor that some son from Florida just arrived and doesn't want to wait for the day team to come at 7 a.m and wants to talk about the colonoscopy results right now, the ones that were done early in the day yesterday, and he couldn't leave his business meeting to get the call from the gastroenterologist. And I'll tell you, when those kind of things happen and you're busy as heck already in the ER or the ICU, I'd rather be the ugliest guy on Chippendales or working a bachelorette party for Thunder Down Under in Las Vegas or wherever than have to go deal with that hassle when you're trying to keep your head in the game at that time in the morning. And trust me, I really would be the ugliest stripper working that party. I recently just accepted that I actually do look like my photographs. You know how many of us deny it and we think we just aren't photogenic? I'm over that. And people that randomly deal with the public in difficult situations, whether they're cops or healthcare workers, deal with so much crap you have no idea. We mostly deal with amazing people in healthcare, but even if 10% are rude and very overly demanding, it takes a toll. Now, yes, I get it. We get better salaries than strippers, though not everybody, and I actually have met a few unit secretaries and CNAs that have said that they strip on the side because they're not getting paid much in the hospital. They don't want to, but they have to. I know I'm going off on a tangent, but what I'm trying to get at is that 3 a.m. is no different than 3 p.m. as far as the quality that is expected from us at all times, at all hours. And it's our honor to do it, but that doesn't mean it's not often brutal. Now, quality and value are often mentioned in the same sentence as if they are the same thing. And I do wanna say they are not, though they are sometimes linked, meaning Value is achieving the best outcomes at the lowest cost, 
reduction in unnecessary care. That would be an example of the low-hanging fruit that can reduce costs. So you don't want to do three MRIs for chronic back pain, obviously. That's an example of poor quality and poor value. But we must also acknowledge that good quality can be more expensive. So Toyota may be a good value, but there is a large market that believes a Lexus is quality worth paying for. I make that point because I've heard so many lecturers, including economists and politicians, and even some doctors, talk about value and quality as if they are the same thing. They aren't. And we see so many healthcare policy debates that don't acknowledge that. Now, we can acknowledge, I think at this point in me talking, about how big the web has become. So solely scapegoating politicians and administrators for all the problems in healthcare delivery is ridiculous. Some doctors and hospitals and device and drug manufacturers have put revenue generation way above the priority of helping people, and I do think it has chipped away at the soul of the sacred profession. Now, a few bad apples have learned how to game every single payment system, and that will continue to happen despite past and future reforms. Several of the bureaucratic barriers physicians and nurses face each day, and man, are they increasing, they result from trying to tame the misdirected moral compass of a sizable minority who routinely put profit above the patient. Well, single payer will eliminate a lot of professional costs, so we should get back to that. And one example of that is not having insurance staff. So the current estimate is $238 billion will be saved in the U.S. each year if we reduced our insurance overhead to 2% from its current 12%. Now, currently, like our neighbor, for instance, Canada, Canada only pays 1.6% in overhead, so it's not like other countries aren't already able to do this. A single payer will set payment rates, and my guess is it won't be fair after a few years when the system becomes more stressed, but nevertheless, it will reduce costs in a lot of ways, including reduced payments, but also in reducing overhead and possibly with negotiating prices with outside manufacturers, but we can get back to that in a little bit. All right, so with so many problems, you know, are there answers? And I think there are some really important answers, but they're not easy to get to. For the first step that I think we have to acknowledge, but is a critical step, is rational rationing. Now, nearly everyone does acknowledge that there is a lack of resources, and most prefer to tell fables such as, if efficiency were so much better, we wouldn't lack monetary resources. I just don't think, even if we got efficiency tons better, and I would like to see efficiency be better, but we may be getting to the point where we're running on the hamster wheel as fast as we can in a lot of areas of efficiency, particularly frontline providers. But let's say we even got efficiency better. I don't think we can afford single payer or universal coverage or what we have right now without drastic rationing. Meaning I think we will keep bankrupting our current healthcare model without rationing and fiscal discipline or rather lack of it may be the downfall not only of my country, but this lack of fiscal discipline is clearly glaring in healthcare economics. 
And rationing is a very uncomfortable thing for me to speak about and a very uncomfortable thing for people to hear about. But, you know, the things we can agree on that we think should be paid for, I think most of us at least agree on that, preventative care, trauma, diabetes, simple and moderately complex hospitalizations are the type of things nearly everybody can agree on should be paid for. Extending life and chronic diseases with expensive modalities for an extra few weeks or even an extra few months very often is not working out well for our country, particularly in this time where some of these medications for certain cancers, for instance, are literally in the six figures. And yes, part of the answer is to bring down the costs of those medications and therefore have capitalism with breaks, which is what I was talking about earlier. Now, a lot of these issues, as many will point out, don't exist nearly as much in other countries to the degree that they do in the United States. For example, you know, multiple hospitalizations for very late-stage Alzheimer's. That should be an economic choice for families, but it doesn't have to be put on taxpayers. If you are on the spectrum of a belief that all healthcare is a right, I mean, do you really mean all healthcare costs in all scenarios. Even the right wing that argues against healthcare being a right, they were the ones screaming death panel at the concept of just discussing end of life care wishes with terminally ill patients when it came up in the Affordable Care Act. It had to be taken out of the Affordable Care Act to discuss code status with terminally ill patients. And let me clarify, that wasn't to make terminally ill patients do not resuscitate. It was just to have a conversation about whether they might want to make themselves do not resuscitate. So rationing is a very difficult thing, apparently, for us to even slightly discuss. And it's going to need to happen, and not just at the end of life, but for many other things. So this is 2019, and recently there was a story in multiple major media outlets that sex offenders on Medicaid in New York got erectile dysfunction drugs courtesy of the New York taxpayers. That's one state and nearly everywhere has tons of examples of crazy spending that shouldn't be happening. And for that matter, I mean, are erectile drugs ever so medically necessary that taxpayers should ever pay for them? Or should they be something that is paid for out of pocket? There will be extreme challenges cutting back on what have become very sensitive topics. So for example, is sex reassignment surgery, currently this goes by the more politically correct term of gender affirmation surgery, is it truly a medical necessity for the public to pay for? I think definitely yes, for example, for an intersex person born with ambiguous genitalia, but for thousands of others who don't fall into that category that claim psychological harm if it is withheld, is that the taxpayer's responsibility or something that should be totally out of pocket? You know, I mean, some people are psychologically totally distraught by their wrinkles, but I think we all agree facelifts and Botox should remain out of pocket. You know, for that matter, studies show better looking people are employed more and they get higher salaries. Therefore, should those actual facts argue that taxpayers should pay for personal trainers or plastic surgery? And I think that would be insane. Just because there is 
a valid data point to argue a point, we have to move away from that thinking and accept there are very real limits to what taxpayers and the government can afford. Are we going to keep paying for transplants on death row or even those serving life in prison? I know of kids that have failed off college because they couldn't get off the video games. Divorces are happening when compulsive gamers are not working or interacting with their spouse and all sorts of negative consequences are occurring. There is now a medical code that we can charge for gaming addiction as a mental health disorder. And I believe these are real. I just don't agree with paying for every problem. Again, as I don't believe every healthcare issue is a right. A whole lot of healthcare should indeed be a right, in my opinion, but not all. A multitude of mental health issues like schizophrenia are things that I think should be covered for disability, inpatient treatments, medications, whatever it takes. The problem again comes down to how can the public come together to decide? And I just don't think the U.S. is capable at this particular point in our history to make hard decisions. So when I hear politicians or others say healthcare is right or others argue that it isn't, my own opinion is those are attempts to make a gray issue black or white. I want to hear the slogan, some healthcare is a right, and that person's going to perk my interest. I just don't see us having the fortitude to really make deep cuts right now. Both parties are terrible with spending, and both are extremely influenced by lobbyists. So even when we had, let's say, a Republican president with a Republican House and Republican Senate in 2003, a law was passed to enormously expand drug coverage, which, by the way, I philosophically agree with if it were a funded mandate. However, at the same time, that law absolutely and outright prohibited the United States government from negotiating drug prices. They said the market will take care of it. Mm -hmm. That law, in my opinion, was legal bribery, but not an ounce more ethical than illegal bribery that would happen in Saudi Arabia or Mexico or countless other countries. If you want to argue that is capitalism, I will tell you that you are misguided and not thinking things through. Getting enormous profits by putting the country in debt at a minimum is not sustainable, and the processes are pushing us there are absolutely morally corrupt. And while I get that single-payer healthcare has worked in some places, you know, one reason why single-payer universal healthcare won't work for us as opposed to a place like Scandinavia, is that the people of Scandinavia are willing to pay a lot more in taxes to have the freedom of universal healthcare. Now I say freedom because they don't have to stay in one job or one town to get their healthcare. They have the liberty to change jobs and not worry if their healthcare coverage will exist with that new employment. They can even just become their own entrepreneur and go into business for themselves. I think the U.S. will only bankrupt itself more to put the cart before the horse. If we do begin to believe in single coverage or universal health care, we need to first agree to significantly more taxes for everyone and not just the billionaires as it just won't cover the costs. I mean, if we could just tax the billionaires and get away with it, fine, but it won't cover the costs. And let's face it, very significant tax increases aren't likely to get voted on in the near future. It's just a different time. So, you know, in World War II, 
the unbelievable soldier sacrifices aside, you know, women went into factories. There was rationing of consumption that included gasoline, food, and stamps. In our Middle East wars, as, you know, the contradiction to what happened in World War II over the past decades, even the most nationalistic people out there, the ones claiming to be the most patriotic Americans, a lot of them would get very upset at the debate of having a small gas tax to partly pay for the war. So we all just went into much more debt. I really cannot foresee in the near future a scenario where a healthy majority who are not chronically ill will want to sacrifice significant income to help the suffering minority. It is a sad opinion that I wish wasn't true, but it is one I strongly believe. See, there's no such thing as free healthcare. It has to be paid for. So we must decide how much we want to pay for and ration or eliminate out what we cannot or will not pay for. It is true that with hundreds of private and public payers in the U.S. healthcare system, we continue to have enormous administrative costs that other countries don't have. With U.S. prices of pharmaceuticals and imaging and procedures higher than other countries, the consumer and taxpayers do spend more. Higher prices increase profits and investors like profits. And that being said, at the same time, no matter what payment system we have, we can't afford it. So even if we keep the status quo or change to universal health care coverage, the government in reality is going to need to someday step in and set overall spending and payments. And then there's the difficult political reality, which is why those payments haven't been limited. So we need to follow the money that influences voting in Congress and for presidents even, and the right wing and the left wing are flying the exact same bird. The left-leaning voters feel that billionaires and corporations are the problem, and the right-wing voters feel the government is corrupt. Meanwhile, the actual reality is that billionaires and corporations are buying a government which corrupts itself for those special interests. Too many businesses include insurance companies and pharmaceuticals, device industry, hospitals, and the so-called quality industry, and electronic health record industry, and yes, even some doctors, not to mention coding and billing companies, all of them don't want to give up their piece of the pie. Not only won't they not give up their piece, they are hungry for more pie, even if others starve. And while we're talking about political reality, it's not just the lobbying of politicians that the companies partake in, but it's important to remember that millions of voters, millions of Americans, are also employed by those companies in all those fields. That's a lot of fields I just mentioned. Think of how many people are employed, not to mention the spouses who rely on those who are employed in those fields. They're all going to vote, understandably, in their self-interest. And speaking of self-interest, I think it's important to talk about what's happening at state levels because a lot of states have decided, well, it's in our interest to try and determine some of these solutions at a state level because they don't trust for understandable reasons that things will happen positively at the federal level. So are individual state public options a pathway to a federal single payer? Possibly. There are good reasons why states are exploring and building public plan models. So for example, in my state of Colorado in 2019, we have 14 counties with access to only a single insurer, which here happens to be Anthem. 
the other insurers had pulled out. There is no insurance market. So in those 14 counties, the number of uninsured people where there is only a single insurer, the number of uninsured people is rising. Again, are individual state public options a pathway to a federal single payer? Possibly, but most states are going to come to the realization they cannot afford to set up their own health plans. And they're going to prefer and need a national option. Now, another thing is, I know a lot of you out there right now listening are thinking, why not have both? And there are some that feel an incremental approach, such as providing people with both a bigger public option as well as private plans, will be the first road built towards a single payer, but ultimately, I don't think it's going to work. Now, I get the idea behind it to have a bigger public option. It's like passing a law for medical legal marijuana before making recreational marijuana legal. And while that scenario did work exactly for Colorado, where I live, um, I don't think it's going to work for healthcare because such halfway measures, this hybrid of government and private industries, while it's much more feasible for politicians and easier for the public to digest, the problem is it doesn't simplify billing or improve administrative costs, and therefore it really won't change much. It's actually very similar to what we have, which unfortunately is a disaster right now. At least it's a disaster for a whole lot of people. I realize there are some people that feel they have very good coverage and want to keep things the way they are. I should acknowledge that. All right, so how do I wrap things up? You know, in summary, well, I mean, in summary, I mean, I guess it's how I started off, that we're stuck in this frustrating cycle where the government is too incompetent to do healthcare and private industry has proven itself too greedy to be trusted with healthcare. And that greed has broken us and eventually will break us so severely that we, in despair, will have to pass a single-payer system that I will bet anyone that when it is passed, it will be an unfunded mandate with insane false insurances that it's going to pay for itself by cutting costs and have increased savings in the future, which it won't, meaning there will be some savings and decrease in costs, but it won't pay for itself. You know, a strong government role in designing the plan and setting payment rates is going to be painful for many. The only thing worse will be the continued unhindered profits extracted from the sick and the vulnerable and the taxpayers who are not currently paying enough attention to the debts they will later collectively pay. So Medicare for all, universal health care, single payer, it's on the right side of theoretical ethics, but won't actually work anytime soon in practicality. Now, there is a moral imperative and there's an economic imperative to have universal coverage if we could get over the economic and political forces that includes you know, the left being all things to all people and too much of the right and parts of the left in the pocket of industry. And most importantly, the allowance of some degree of rationing of what services are covered from the citizen voting public. No matter how quickly we do or don't change health policy, we need to stop saying healthcare is a right or healthcare isn't a right. Those attempts to make a gray issue black or white are hurting us. Much of healthcare should be a right, but if we think all of it should be a right, we continue down a path of self-defeat.
Well, thanks for hanging in there and hearing me out on all of this. This is Dr. Gil Parat. I will catch you on the next round.